Heroes get remembered. Here's the windup. Legends never die. Fastball hits deep to right. This could be it. Way back there. Oh, Welcome to Hardball. Today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. Major League Baseball's history in first person. Conversations that span almost 20 years. It is 9.46 p.m. With the men who saw and made that history. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Many of whom are no longer with us. Swung out and missed a perfect game. Stories from the 1930s. To the 21st century. This is Hardball. Dad, you want to have a catch? Welcome into Hardball. My name is Chris Domino, and this is our continuing trip around the world of baseball through firsthand conversations with the men who not only played the game, many at a Hall of Fame level, the 1% of the 1% of the 1%, but all who were involved in some of the greatest, most infamous, historically significant games and moments of all time. Our guest today certainly fits into that second group. He had a front row seat to two of the most incredible, most replayed, holy blank home runs of all time. And if things had gone differently for him, he could have possibly been in that first group, the rare air group of players who are forever introduced as Hall of Famer, followed up by their given birth name. I appreciate you finding us. And if our guest today interested you enough to see what's going on here in our little piece of the podcast world, thanks for coming in. I hope you enjoy him enough to subscribe, which means you will get a notice when we throw another one of these out there, or has you go back to listen to previous episodes. If you're back for another go-round or you're a regular, thanks so much. I appreciate you taking the time to spend with us, and I thank so many of you for helping to spread the word, one friend or sports fan at a time. I've done the math on this one. If everyone listening today tells three people, and then they tell three people, and so on and so on and so on, well, I really have no idea what would happen, but it might be kind of cool to find out. Quick aside, I had a gentleman who lives in Kentucky, a lifelong 40 years plus Reds fan who was given a heads up about us here the week of the Joe Morgan episode. He wrote to tell me that he had never heard Joe open up about his career, but more importantly, tell stories about his life the way he did here. In turn, he went back to listen to every other episode because he realized that like me and many of you, these stories go beyond the uniforms these men wore, beyond your fandom of a certain team or player. He labeled Hardball as, I quote, an independent film that has lined up some of the biggest stars in the world, but there are no car crashes, no meteors, no wizards or vampires. So as he told me, again, I quote, maybe you'll never win at the box office, but there are people out here who appreciate the quiet way to tell a story. I'll take that every day. If you get a chance and you listen on Apple, please rate and review. And if you would like to send a note, I'm at at Chris Domino on Twitter, and I've got a new email address I will give you next week. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks to Keith Ippolito, who puts these together. I hope you enjoy how these are presented. Fred Lynn was a hell of a player. Hall of Fame talent oozed out of him, went healthy. And when it comes to accumulating enough numbers to be called great, he didn't have a chance because of his ankle, his ribs, his knees, and a back that bothered him way too early in his life and career. He played 150 games only once, and less than 120 six times, and played a bunch of those games at much less than I'm guessing 80% of his can't-take-your-eyes-off-of-him talent. But when he was good, man, he was good. And that started at a very young age. Fred will talk about growing up as a multi-sport star in California and how it was football that got him a scholarship to USC. 
playing and winning multiple College World Series, playing internationally, and of course his bursting onto the scene as the first ever Rookie of the Year and MVP in the same season, joined by Ichiro 26 years later, but I, like many of you, will put a mental asterisk on that rookie part of that one. How the 1975 World Series brought baseball to primetime network TV, the Fisk home run, how it could have been different for the Red Sox, and how winning Game 7 could have changed the trajectory of his career. We will talk of Jim Rice, the rivalry with the Yankees, Bucky Dent and Lou Pinella, who every Red Sox fan swears made the luckiest play in big game history. You want a Ted Williams story or two? Stick around. Got those. Getting traded from Boston, how is that even possible? Listen to the open and close of this episode. Carlton Fisk will tell you how good Fred Lynn was. Peter Gammons will tell you what would have happened. Not could have, would have happened if Fred wasn't traded at all. By the way, here's a hint. He hit 347 with a 420 on base percentage and slugged 601 in Fenway in 1,500-plus at-bats. His teammates in California and bouncing around to end his career. Life after the game. And a good guy don't bellyache nature that still resides in him. Don't get it twisted. Fred Lynn hit 306 home runs. Almost 400 doubles. 1,000-plus runs scored. 1,000-plus RBIs. Nine-time All-Star. Four gold gloves. The man hit 407 in the postseason. Four All-Star game home runs, second only to Stan Musial's six. Hall of good. Hall of very good. But losing to a wall a couple of times, to a second base bag another time, and just a bad card dealt to him when it came to that back of his. It's an incredible story, and one of those what-might-have-been careers that baseball is littered with. And Fred will fill you in on how he sees it this many years later. He'll talk about it all. This is our conversation from a few months back. People have asked me who I thought was the best outfielder I ever played with, and... I said, you should have seen Freddie Lynn play when he was, wasn't hurt. Best outfielder I ever saw. Way back, way back. Downing is back there. So is Lynn. It is by Lynn. Freddie uh, was a California guy, but not so uh, California. And there's a high fly ball deep to right field. Going back, ripping, forget it. It's gone. Not flashy. Just went out and did what we had to do. He was more of a hard worker. Um, let's get the job done. Evans, Fred Lynn, Jim Rice, and, and Yaz. In my lifetime, was by far the best outfield I've ever seen. Number 300 for Fred Lynn in his career. And he is a happy man. He was uh, a diver. Uh, he was a leaper. He, he had a tremendous all. And the pitch is belted to right field. Hooking down the line. He's gone. Home run for Fred Lynn. And the American League leads 2 to nothing. This gentleman holds one of the greatest distinctions in baseball history, being a Rookie of the Year and an MVP in the same season, 1975, memorable for a whole lot of reasons. Fred Lynn does join us today. Fred, it has been a while. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. It's always my pleasure to be on the show. Thank you. Um, can I? So does it feel like it was a long, long time ago, or does it not? <laughs> what, what actually happens these days when you think about the start of your career? You know, that's a, a pretty good question, actually, because it's – when I look at the, the amount of years that have gone by, it doesn't seem quite right because some of the memories, especially when I'm with some of my teammates, they seem like they're like yesterday um, in our minds, and we can recall a lot of specific things that happened to us. Um, but then when you look back and say, 40-something years ago, that can't be. Um, so it's, a, it's an odd feeling to look uh, back on it and say it was that long a time. But then, like I said, some of it seems like it was just yesterday. Yeah. So uh, it, it's, a, it's a funny kind of feeling, to be honest with you. You're that first generation of kid, though, that had baseball in California growing up, which is kind of interesting as well. That generation before you, they was whether it was the sporting news or some radio stuff or whatever you got nationally, 
you actually had California baseball as a kid. We did. Um, well, I, I grew up in the L.A. suburbs, and <clears throat> I could go to a Dodger game. I could, when the California Angels came out then, could see them. Um, that was early on, but uh, yeah, we we had some, and then you know they play the Giants and stuff like that. Or, or we had uh, access to baseball um, on the national level, uh, where if you were in a, a smaller community, um, not, not 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 LA, yeah, you had to hunt and peck for things. That the sporting news was like the Bible back then. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it was wasn't really current. It was like a week late, but at least you could find things to read about the guys. You say, oh yeah, he did this or he did that uh, other than that boy there was there was not much available to us we asked this question because sometimes the numbers are ridiculously gaudy and i will assume they were for you uh high school if i read your line in high school if you're good enough to go play at the best college baseball program or one of them in the country i i know what kind of player you were but there's a lot of talent in the la area i mean tons of athletic talent certainly uh how good a high school player were you actually um, you know what? Uh, back then, you know, freshmen played on. Um, I played on the junior varsity as, as a freshman um, in baseball. Um, I played three sports in high school. I played football, basketball, and baseball. So baseball was just one of the sports that I played. Um, and I was always really good in baseball. I mean, I was always the best player on the team and maybe even the league and those kinds of things. And that carried over to high school, too, uh, especially my junior and senior seasons. You know, I'm, I'm on the all, well, it's all CIF, and that's like all Southern California teams. Um, and you were right. It was a real hotbed for talent. There were tons of guys that were really good. Um, but you didn't know how good because – there was no national exposure. You'd play a team, you know, across town and say, "Hey, that guy, that guy can really play." But you know, if you went two towns over, you might not know the guys um, unless you played them. So, uh, yeah, I was good. Um, I was a pitcher then. You know, I'm left-handed, so uh, when I didn't pitch, I played center, which is very boring then because not many guys hit the ball out to you. Uh, but as a pitcher, I could. could, could control the game and I love that part of it uh, my junior year I was like 11-1 with a 1 ERA my senior year our guys graduated so my record was 6-5 and five, but my ERA was like .4 <laughs> so I either strike them out or they, you know, they scored um, yeah so I was a pretty good player but when I was being recruited to go to college I was being recruited to play football uh, I went to SC on a football scholarship and I played baseball as well yeah. Can I ask, when you had that moment of uh, bottom of the ninth, game seven of the World Series, were you pitching or were you hitting in that thing as a kid? I was pitching. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I could hit, but uh, pitching was, you know, I think uh, back then teams were scouting me both ways, uh, depending on what they needed in their organization. Um, you know, I never really had somebody coached me as a pitcher you know he just kind of went out there and did it and said well here's the rubber here's how you move your foot um but there was no arm angles or slots or none of that kind of stuff you did what you did i i learned how to throw a curveball by watching sandy koufax and try to simulate my elbow in that position and i used to get a big tumbler and i would flip it into a pillow to get a 12-6 rotation so you know (laughs) that's kind of how we learned back then uh, had I had a little bit more instruction on the mound, I might have been a pitcher instead of a hitter. So when the time comes to make choices, you know, life choices or certainly sports choices, what does it come down to for you when, you know, the Boston Red Sox are going to draft you? But but what was the, the, I don't know if it was a kitchen room table discussion, 
How did it work in your house as to what was going to be next for you? Coming out of high school, I was the first person in my family to go to college. So that was the goal. Back then, if you if you were a bonus baby, um, you could get six figures maybe. That was a ton of dough. And just a very few select guys were getting that. So um, they couldn't pay you enough to offset a college education back then, really. So I was going to school. And we were telling the scouts, my dad and I, or mostly my dad, um, that, you know, this kid, he's going to school. He's got a full scholarship to USC, and he's going. So don't waste your time drafting him out of high school. Um, and then, you know, when college came, and then that's a whole different scenario then because my college career was way different than uh, my high school career because I got more national exposure. But uh, that was the point out of high school. Uh, he's going to, don't, going to school. Don't waste your time with him. Was there any moment where you thought the idea of playing any professional sport? Because, look, everybody has a dream of doing it, but then reality hits for a lot of us sooner instead of later. What was the, the prospect beyond the college education? The fact that that's being afforded to you is fantastic. Do you know that in the quiet moments what you thought you were going to do or maybe be able to do? Um, I never let that kind of um, – I was really focused on, on being uh, – Educated first, and you know, if, if the, the baseball thing or football thing, if that worked out, um, that would be great. But that was not the plan A, really, um, until after my first season at USC, um, where I, you could play varsity baseball then, and I did, and we won a national title, um, and I was on the all tournament team in Omaha. Plus, I played on the USA team um, down in Cali, Columbia in the Pan Am games. I led that tournament in home runs. Uh, I hit a home run against uh, Cuba in the gold medal game. So I got a lot of exposure my first year. I saw the best players um, at the College World Series, and then I saw international players, you know, Cuba and Dominican Republic and Puerto Rico. I saw all those players, and they were much older than I was, and I was every bit as good as they were. That's when I said, well, hmm, you know, this might be something I could, uh, I could do professionally. So what's the conversation with the Red Sox then? How does give – give me the draft scenario because, again, they televise the draft now. I've had guys <laughs> tell me they got a telegram to tell them they were drafted into Major League Baseball. That's right. Um, I didn't even know the Red Sox were interested in me. You know, there were a lot of teams that would <clears> – <throat> be very vocal about it and up front say, hey, you know, we're looking at your son, or they would introduce themselves, Scott mm-hmm. would introduce himself to my dad or things like that, but never from the Sox. I, I had no clue that they were interested. Um, really, it was supposed to be the Dodgers because uh, my my coach at USC had a relationship with all the Dodger brass and even Tom Lasorda, so it looked like that's where I was going to go. And um, the Dodgers thought that they could sneak me by the first round and get me in the second round, and the Red Sox were ahead of them, and the Red Sox took me. So when that happened, you know, I talked to my coach at, at USC, Rod Dato, and and because I didn't know anything about the Sox, and he said, "They're a good organization. You know, it's it's time. You know, you you played three years here. You can't do any more at this level." And that's pretty much uh, what dictated why I signed with the Sox. And then we negotiated. They were going to give me incentives and all those kinds of things. And I said, no, nah, I want it all up front. <laughs> and um, so they did. They gave me all the incentives up front. And I get just about as much as their uh, first-round draft choice. And, and then, then I, my career started from there. Yeah, you know what's really interesting? Because 
I was just with Dale Murphy at an event last night, and, and Dale was drafted as a, a catcher, and he had the yips, and it was just starting to all go away. He was the number five pick overall. The right. point is, his story was a lot like a lot of other guys who didn't play in the College World Series or international games. When he showed up for his first spring training, there's grown-ass men there, and he is not worldly, and he certainly knows that he was good against his competition that he played at. But Glavin is another guy that said, there were eight of me. I showed up and there were eight of me. How much having the experience in the College World Series, playing at a program like USC and certainly playing internationally, I'm not telling you there's not a moment where you're wondering, okay, is this going to work for me? But how much of an advantage did you have back then when not a lot of guys were exposed to that type of talent? It's a tremendous advantage. It was the reason that I was able to be Rookie of the Year and MVP my first year. To be honest, uh, I had so much experience internationally. Um, my second year, sophomore year, I represented the USA again in the first ever collegiate All-Stars against Japan in Japan. So we have the, our best players, college players, against their best college players playing in their major league stadiums for like two weeks, best of seven. I was the MVP of the tournament. I have a trophy set three feet tall, and it's, it's in Japanese, so I don't even know what it says. Uh, so I would, and again, the next my uh, junior year, I again played for the USA. So all those things that I was uh, fortunate enough to, to be able to do as a collegian, no one else had really done before prior to me. Um, but there was no national TV, or nobody knew about it. You know, it just I did, mm-hmm. and some of the you know the college people they knew what was going on, but the professionals they didn't know what we were doing, um, and so that was invaluable. Just the experience of getting on a plane and going to another country with the USA on your chest, and you hear sometimes they didn't like like this, sometimes they hated you. So all those kinds of things, they. Uh, that really prepared me for coming to the major leagues. And now I, I go up and um, I start my professional career and, and I get a taste of it. And I say, okay, well, okay, these are just like the games I used to play uh, in college. It's just, uh, you know, more people are, are seeing me play. Do you think um, if you had come out out of high school, let's just say you were good enough where somebody said right. and your dad hadn't, how different do you think it is being 17 or 18, being away from home for the first time, not playing against men at any point? I mean, I marvel. You know, even today, these kids are playing 110 games a year, and I know there's travel ball, and I know there's all this personalized instruction. But, but I got to tell you, going away from home for the first time, playing in front of 32 people in rookie ball, well, you want to take your uh, your get-ready pill because life is really different. You're no, you're no longer big man on campus in that world anymore. No, you're certainly not. And you probably never had ridden a bus for 10 hours either. Right. And they didn't hop off and, um, oh, there's no time. Just get to the field and play. Um, those kinds of things. Uh, or knew that a yeah. scouting report was going to be written on you when a grown-ass man, a manager, is yelling at you on a given Tuesday. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's that's true. Uh, it's That's one of the things you learn right away. Um, you don't call the manager a coach. I, I, I found that out right away when I, I went to double-A. And... Um, uh, from college, and our our manager, his name was Rack Slider, is X D I. So he was pretty strict. And I said, "Hey, coach, how you doing?" He goes, "Hey, I'm not your coach." Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Lesson <laughs> learned, sir. I I will never make that mistake again. <laughs> so, so, so yeah, but you're right. Life experience. If I if I'm a high school kid, yeah. and you're shoving me to some single A uh, club and who knows where. 
I, there's no way that I'm prepared to do the things that I did as a rookie mm-hmm. if I go up the ranks that way. Yeah, would I go through the ranks pretty quickly? Yep, I would have. But the, there's no way because you have to live your life. You know, there's you, what you do on the field playing, and then there's the other part, living your life. And that's what I tell people about the big leagues. You know, playing the game was easy for me. That was that was the easy part. The hard part, being a rookie, you know, find all these different new stadiums, figuring out what the pitcher was, where to go, where to eat, all these things, uh, just life experiences that no one thinks about. They just see you on the field, and they don't care about what you do the rest of the Well, let me time. tell you, I'll tell you how long 45 years is, because I've had the discussion with a lot of guys. I've been doing this 26 years, 25 years here in Atlanta where I've been in clubhouses, and I've watched five different, I think, maturations of the Atlanta Braves from the Chipper Jones, Javi Lopez, Ryan Klesko, first group in 94, 95, 96, to all the other groups that have come up. Let me tell you the world of rookies compared, comparative to what you guys had to deal with because these young guys have no idea. You're talking about having to do that stuff on your own. You're not kidding. I'm sure there weren't a ton of guys who were looking to make your life maybe as easy as it could be, and certainly these young guys today have no concept of what being ostracized is as a young guy trying to figure out, and everybody trying to figure out if you're really going to help us or not. Well, that's true. In fact, uh, rookies had to earn their stripes um, with the veterans on the club. I mean, you just weren't accepted like, hey, nice to see you, kid. And that wasn't the way it was. Yeah. If you, if they thought that you could help the club, okay, you know, they're in, but you have to prove it. And you don't prove it in spring training. You prove it during the season. And that takes a while, too. And then once the, the guys say, okay, these guys can, these guys can play. Okay, poof, you're on the team. But prior to that, mm-mm, you have to earn your stripes. And same way, you made a, a great point with the kids today, um, having everything done for them, um, that, that we'll get into that maybe about how it affects them as players too, but um, as non-players or just living conditions, no one did anything for us. We had to find a place to live, yep. and there was nobody on the club that was dedicated to do that for you, make your life easier. Not, you had to figure it out. And so consequently, when I played with the Sox, we had a, like, uh, a whole bunch of young guys. So we all stayed together. We all lived in the same area because that was easier. We could communicate and get to the ballpark t- together as a unit and those kinds of things. Uh, it was, I'm sure it's, it's a whole lot different for the guys today. So the 75 postseason, in my opinion, look, I, I don't re- – my first recollection was the 69 Mets. I'm a six-year-old kid, but I was growing up in a Met house. So I just remember the excitement about that team that wasn't supposed to do anything. I don't I, – I know a lot historically about them as well. Uh, but the thing that I don't think a lot of people realize is it was still day games for the World Series right up until the beginning of the 1970s. The 75 World Series and certainly Carlton's home run and everything that went on with the big red machine and how that thing – Nighttime, primetime baseball. Baseball changed forever in 1975. I think there are certain years where you go, oh, the game changed. The game changed here. There are maybe eight, ten times that the game changed. I thought 75, your rookie year, an MVP year in that World Series, changed baseball forever. Am I overemphasizing that, or do you think that's a reality? No, I think it's a reality. I think it's a really good point, valid point, Um, strictly because of TV. Um, TV was... You know, it was the game of the week, uh, national game of the week on Saturday. That's the only time anybody saw um, the teams nationally, basically. A lot of the teams didn't even broadcast their own games. 
So mm-hmm. you just hardly ever saw anybody nationally. Now that World Series, because it was two big teams, lots of big names on those teams, and the way the series went down, everybody in the country was watching. And that's when TV said, you know what? We got something here. Exactly. We have something here. Let's do this night game thing and get more of an audience involved. More money comes in from the advertisers. And that's when it started to move the needle. Uh, had Say it was just an average World Series. Might not have moved the needle enough for TV to jump in, but that one did. Everybody saw so many things happen during that series, and everybody goes, hey, that was pretty fun to watch. That, that series was crazy. You can list a, like it's baseball is not a sport where you, you can list numbers, but it's not supposed to be a sport where you can list, oh, this begets this, begets this, begets this, begets this. There was so much stuff happened in that world. And we find out how many Hall of Famers and really great players were involved in it because sometimes you need a time factor as well. Right. But it is incredible the things that went on uh, during the course of that, that, that stretch. Yeah, it's. Um, uh, I know that uh, Game Six, uh, Major League Baseball Network, you know, voted that the best game ever played. <laughs> so you you throw that one in there, um, uh, uh, the, and like you say, time gives you a better perspective of what was going on. We knew it was great at the time, but mm-hmm. you don't know how great until many years pass by, right? So, but that's just one game. There were a lot of games where lots of things, crazy things were happening. Um, and each individual game had drama. Uh, and there was no blowouts in any of the games. So it was uh, riveting uh, if you're a baseball fan. Even if you were not a baseball fan, I think it drew, drew people's attention to the players because there were a lot of young guys, too. And I think the fan bases um, are they gravitate to the younger players because they're not too far removed from the people that are watching. Right. And, so, and they needed personalities. Baseball was correct. a sport that needed personalities on top. And and white hat, black hat. That happened with you guys and the Yankees. It happened with right. the Yankees. But you needed that. You know, it had, it had been the Yankee domination for so long. And when they're bad, and they were bad for a stretch. I mean, they were right. bad until free agency. They needed something. If it's not going to be the Yankees and if it's really not going to be the Dodgers because the Reds keep beating them, what are we going to get out of it? I I thought it was the perfect TV moment for baseball to have its moment. Yeah, we really, you know, Cincinnati is a small market team, but they had a great team. Yes. But, you know, and Boston is is not a small market, Um, but it wasn't a national market, really. It was just like a New England thing. Um, In fact, they they could have been called the New England Red Sox, really. But but this now, that's a national team. Wow. And, and of course, the Reds were a powerhouse, so that. You know, they were household names. So it was a confluence of a lot of uh, interesting things all happening all at once. And like you said, time, once it passes by, I said, hey, that was really something. Yeah, the other part I think that really proves it is the Oakland A's is the greatest run, stretch, dynasty that's never talked about. And if you right. th- it's, it's, it ends with you guys in that 75 World Series. But I think because the 75 was such a marking point, they're forgotten. I mean, I, yeah. I don't hear anybody talk. That's a three-time World Series winner. I hear nothing except how they were dismantled with Charlie Finley as soon as free agency hit. Yeah, there was uh, there was more written about the dismantling of the club yes. than the club itself. Exactly. 
<laughs> I mean, they're beating everybody. No, uh, they didn't do it very dramatically. They just beat you. You know, they knew how. To, they had a mm-hmm. bunch of guys that knew how to win, and they had really good pitching. And it was not even a hitter's park. But they played great defense. They won close games. Um, somebody would hit a home run to win a game that you didn't hear about. And they were just champions. Um, they knew how to win. But no one really has written about it much. And you know, we had to go through them to get to the Reds. Right. So, you know, when we did, uh, even without Jimmy Rice, we went right through him. Um, that was a big deal, but uh, it wasn't really written about much. I agree. It, it's crazy historically how they're sort of the uh, the stepchild of all of baseball's greatest teams. Now, I, I don't know if it's a fair question 45 years later, but do you recall how you slept like before World Series games or, or uh, leading up to, because now all of a sudden it is a night game on top of everything else. Do you remember your temperament and, and how you handled it? Or, or was there a nervousness attached to the whole idea of being on whatever stage it was going to be? No, you know what? Um, um, again, I have to draw on my college experience because I had played at the highest level, um, at just about every level I played at. So when we get to the World Series, I'm kind of like, okay, this is what's supposed to happen. You know, at USC, when we had, our season started, and I was a freshman, I looked at the bottom of the schedule and said, Omaha, on our schedule. <laughs> and and so Coach Dato wanted <clears throat> all the parents to know when Omaha was so they could take their vacation because we were going. Right. <laughs> have you, ever heard, have you ever heard the Mickey Mantle line about being no. a winner? Allegedly, and I I had a couple of guys tell me Rizzuto was the one guy, at least at a first hand, could verify it. Mickey used to walk up to the young guys and say, "Don't blow this. I've already spent my World Series money." <laughs> so it's that concept well, of this is what we do. Right, that's right, and so that's the winning program, and that's how I was basically raised, if you will, uh, at the collegiate level. That's way why my thinking was. So now I'm playing professional ball, and oh by the way. Um, I was on the AAA World Series team, which we won the year before. So I'm just marching along like I have been for the last four years. So was I nervous? Yeah, you get you get butterflies, but um, nothing that I hadn't experienced before. It's just a different different platform, a different level. But I'd already already done it. I fully expected to win. Yeah. So I got to ask you: Was 1918 and 1975 ever brought up? Was there there? Was the curse of the Bambino? I, no, I don't know when time. that became a thing. No, not one time was that ever brought up. Um, I'd never heard of that until um, many years later. Um, <clears throat> you know, they used to, you hear this, oh, they've done it to us again. You know, they get so close and not win. But I never heard the word curse. I think probably, um, so the Sox maybe played the Mets. Um, maybe that's when it came out, but I don't remember it being uh, an issue with us when I was with the Sox at any point. Um, now, I want to fast forward a little bit because when you make the World Series, and, and by the way, uh, 45 years later, and I've told you this before, congratulations for being on that list of, oh, by the way, Rookie of the Year and MVP, because, <laughs> but that's how you were introduced, and rightfully so. Did you think because of the success internationally at USC that it was going to be more? you would have more opportunities to do what you did that first year. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when we lost game seven, <clears throat> four to three, I'd never been on the losing side. <clears throat> I really had not experienced that. So these are emotions that I've never experienced <clears throat> from being a, a collegian, you know, to a professional level. 
Um, then I thought about it. I'm thinking, okay, um, I'm looking at the guys in the room, and we got a lot of young guys, and even our veterans weren't that old. So I'm thinking, well, this we'll just be here, you know, quite often, if not every year. That's kind of was my thinking. Um, I, I've been so ingrained on winning that uh, it was just ex- something I expected to do. And teams that I played for, I expected us to win. And when we didn't, I was more surprised than anybody else. Yeah. So the Jim Rice thing, a lot of people don't know. Jim doesn't make it. He's got a broken hand. I, yep. I don't know if this many years later, what you're allowed to say, or maybe you're already on the record. If you had Jim Rice in that World oh, Series. Oh, I'm team. on the record. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> I'm on the record. I told Bench, I said, listen, if we have Jimmy, we beat you in six. We beat you in six <clears throat> because now we've got a big right-handed bat. He's our number four hitter in our lineup most of the year. Um, Yaz and, and Rice and myself, we all flip-flop from three, four, five mostly. And so you take out Jimmy uh, out of our mix right in the middle of our lineup against Gullet, who was who their main guy, uh, left-hander. You know, that's a big hole to fill. I said to John, I said, listen, it'd be like you not being in there or Tony Perez. You think you, you have a chance a, a, against us without you or Tony in your lineup? So, I, yeah, I'm on the record. What does Johnny <laughs> say? Him. Yeah, what does Johnny say to that? <laughs> no, 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 no. <clears throat> Then Jimmy gets in the Hall of Fame. I said, well, what about now? Yeah. <laughs> and, no, and no, we still beat you. Do you know the, yeah. the, the other crazy thing in that series, look, there's the foster play, there's the catchers, there's a whole bunch of other stuff. But the one thing mm-hmm. that, that sticks out to me more than anything, Bernie Carbo probably had the worst swing I've ever <laughs> seen a major leaguer take to actually set up the Fisk moment. Yeah, I was on second. So I saw that quite well. And um, Raleigh Eastwick was their guy, and, and he threw just a, a – like, it looked like a cutter. I didn't throw cutters then, but it, it just ran in on Bernie. And Bernie like – he says, no, that's not a strike. Oh, no, it's going to be – and he just, like, flinched and literally kicked the ball two feet. And I went, oh, geez, don't do that again. Don't throw him there again. But the next pitch was, uh, was out over the plate, away, and that's where Bernie liked it. And so from – my point of view at second, it was like the worst swing ever to the best swing ever. <laughs> yeah, and it sets up the other moment that everybody now knows about, the more iconic moment when all is said and done. Um, I'm going to ask you about a couple of guys you played with and against in a second, but you do get another crack in 1982. Right. But it's only you only make two postseason appearances. So now right. if we think in 75, oh, no, 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 Rice is coming back, and look at us, and I look around the room, and it's a, it's a fair assessment. Of course we're going to have another shot. Now, this many years later, if I would have told you two Octobers for you in the run that you had, what, what do you say? Yeah, I was, uh, I was really surprised we could never get past. Um, we could get past New York or Baltimore in our division when I was in the Sox. We won a lot of games. If they had the um, wild card, wild or the, card yeah. you know, we've been in the playoffs every year. Every year would have been, but that wasn't the case, and you had to win your division. And we we won 99 games, won 97 games, won 95 games, and you know not a sniff. So, <clears throat> yeah, it was that's a bitter pill. But then we finally got in again in '82. Um, you know, we have four MVPs on the team. We're pretty good. Mm-hmm. We're pretty good. And I I I was happy to literally I was like a kid in a candy store. I, I feel like I'm where I belong. 
um, playoff uh, atmosphere. That's that's what I play for. I don't play for money. I play to win, and that was that's what drives me and 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 always drove me uh, was winning. And so finally, you know, I get another chance, and I I can't wait. I can't wait to play these games. So um, it was great fun until the end when it wasn't. But uh, I really uh, enjoy playoff baseball. Yeah. Let me ask you about a couple of guys, and, and I'll just give you the name, and you just tell me the first thing that pops into your head. Fisk, I'll start with Carlton. Oh, well, Pudge, um, my, my first roommate, um, couldn't tell time and hit the biggest home run ever. <laughs> he was always late for everything. So and you guys, <laughs> we had to be somewhere at 4, I said, all right, 345, Pudge. I don't know if you guys can live any further apart in the United States of America. Personality-wise, did it play out that way, him being a New England guy and you being a California guy? Yeah, I, I, you know, Pudge, but Pudge was kind of the, um, he was like the unspoken leader of the club. You know, he's very vocal, a big type A personality type. And you need those guys on your club because I'm, I'm the other way. You know, I just kind of sit back and I watch what things are going on, but I'm not the vocal guy most of the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he was. And, you know, I, I, you know, he was a leader. You know, he, you know, he was a catcher. He was, he was in control, basically. Um, fun guy to have on the club. I, I love Pudge. Jim Rice? What do you mean? I, he, we came up together um, from double A to triple A to the big wigs. So I've known Jimmy since he was 20. He, I was 21 and he was 20. And um, so we're the gold dust twins. I mean, they coined that phrase uh, sometime in 75. Don't know who did it. Don't know why. Um, but when I see him, he goes, hey, twin, how you doing? <laughs> so, Were you guys supposed to make the team? Coming out of camp, were you guys both supposed to be on that 75 team? Was that sort of everybody knew that, or did that? Because 20, well, Jimmy, 21 and 20 is young back school, then. He was tearing it up through the minors. And I think that uh, because uh, in 74, um, the end of the 74 um, season, mm-hmm. we both went up to AAA, and we won the AAA World Series. They called us up to help them out. To help them out. Mm-hmm. And then um, so the 75 um, spring training, I don't know that we were supposed to make the or, – or, yeah, yeah, 75 spring training, we're supposed to make the club. There's no question okay. about but that. But 21 and 20. 21 and yeah, 20 is. 73 is when we won the uh, right. AAA World Series. 74 um, spring training is AAA. And I'm not sure um, if we're supposed to make it or not. Um, I thought I was, and I, he probably thought he was too. But <laughs> maybe they thought we needed more seasoning, or I, yeah. I probably needed to play more games every day kind of thing. Um, I'm not sure what they thought. It'd been interesting to see if they brought us up earlier in '74, if uh, we win that, because the Sox had a lead in '74 um, into into August, and then they just kind of quit hitting. Yeah. What about Yaz? Well, Yaz was our captain, um, and you know, I just remember '67, and the guy did everything for the club. Uh, he probably drove the bus to the airport. <laughs> I mean, the guy could do no wrong. He got big hit after big hit, and you know he was the presence on the club. He was one of the veterans. He and Rico, um, they'd been through it before, so they'd been on that '67 World Series team, and so '75 World Series team. These are the guys that you know everybody else was looking at. Okay, these guys have been there. They, this is this is good for them. But you know you kind of look at them too, like, all right, 
I'm watching them and, and see how they handle this. And they were so professional that, uh, you know, you just you, you didn't feel uh, uncomfortable about any situations when you had those guys on the team. Were you blown away? I don't know how much. When you get indoctrinated into the Red Sox, when you're drafted by them and you show up, I'm going to ask you about Ted Williams in a second because everybody who's played there has some sort of Ted Williams story. But the idea that it's Ted Williams, Yaz, to Rice. Uh, you know, I know the center fielders for the New York Yankees, you can make a talk and a conversation about certain positions with certain organizations. Um, was because you were a baseball guy, um, was there an, an understanding of how incredible that is? And in other words, when you show up in Boston, what, what do they want you to know about the history, if anything, at that point? I think that, uh, they don't expect you to know, um, I, I did, you know, I, I, I did some homework and then, you know, I was a fan of the game. So I, I knew a little bit. Mm-hmm. Because they were so far away, I'm an L.A. guy, they're Boston. Um, I, I only knew peripherally, you know, some of the stuff. But, you know, I knew the city and I knew Fenway Park. And, and I knew the history of the guys that played there. And literally, when I walked on that field for the first time, I could feel energy. I could feel the, the presence of the guys that played before me. I mean, a man was playing in center field in Fenway Park. You know, all the guys that right. played my position, I'm thinking, geez, those guys played right here. I'm standing in the same place that those guys stood. So that was a pretty cool feeling. And I, I think Fenway exudes that. If you go to Yankee Stadium for the first time, and yeah. which I, you know, got to play there too. And I, I felt those things. Um, that's That was really fun for me, uh, especially as a young guy. Yeah. Um, to know that those other guys had played there and I'm on the same field, that was pretty cool. How much time did Ted spend around? Because I know there were off and on periods with Ted with the Boston Red Sox as an organization. Was he around? Was Because, again, usually Reggie Smith told me a great, I won't bore you with the details, but Reggie, Reggie as a rookie got burned. Uh, they told him, hey, Rook, no room for you in BP today. If you want a BP... Go to that backfield with a bag of balls and hit him up. Like he was literally, and he did it. So his story is Ted Williams walks by, and Ted Williams goes, what the hell are you doing? He goes, well, they didn't tell me there was enough, so I came out here to hit. And Williams realizes they just took advantage of the rookie, like they, and, and he just did it. Ted Williams says, you meet me tomorrow, and we'll go over some things. And that was sort of Reggie Smith's thing with Ted Williams. Uh, I don't know if you had any of that. I don't know how much he was even around during spring training. He wasn't around that much. Um, I I recall a a conversation after I was having some success, and and he was in our locker room up in Fenway, and we were talking about hitting, and and his article in in, uh, Sports Illustrated had come out, um, The Theory of Hitting, you know, by Ted Williams. And he said, you know, what's your theory of hitting? And I said, I see ball and I hit it, Ted. And he said, oh, wrong thing to say to Ted. Yeah. Because I was an attack type guy. Yep. Um, when I was in college, they used to call me Five Pitch Freddy because you could throw five pitches and I hit them all. And I like to be able to know in my own head that I could hit balls that were just out of the strike zone just as well as the ones that were in because maybe I might be the best hitter in the lineup that day. And I, if they're going to try to pitch around me, just getting off the plate, I want to know I could hit those right. balls. And so Teddy's, no, 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 no. You, know, you got you got to hit this one right here. You show me on the plate. You know, you got to take this pitch out here. I said, hey, Ted, I'm a rookie. They call that a strike on me. I'm not Mr. Williams. So I'm hacking. And he goes, oh, God. You know, he, <laughs> that was not what he wanted to hear. <laughs> yeah. And, and I got to ask you about 78 real quick. So if I, if I, it's cheap and easy, but if I say Bucky Dent, Oh yeah, okay. Um, 
you know, uh, Mike Torres was pitching great that day. And, you know, Bucky was the kind of guy, he was, he's like a, we call him a pest mm-hmm. if on the other team because he couldn't strike him out. He was always going to put the ball in play somewhere. And he could really play a slick, slick shortstop. He, he was really good there. But, you know, he, he wasn't known for hitting. That was not his forte. And back then, if you played great shortstop, you didn't have to hit. So, yeah, when he come up, um, and then, uh, you know, he chokes up. It looks like half the bat he's using. Um, I didn't know he switched bats and got uh, yeah. Mickey Rivers' bat. Yeah, that, that came out later. Yep. And, and then he hits the ball. And, and so, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm back and Yaz up in, in left. No, it was, I think Yaz was playing. I, I can't remember if Yaz was playing or not. Anyway, it, it looks like he's going to go off the wall. So I'm backing up and – uh, to see if it's going to come off the wall. And it just, I mean, it was a fence scraper. It just, like the backside of the fence, it just crept in. Um, so, yeah, that was obviously the biggest moment of his career. And, and uh, of course, he's infamously known. Oh, yeah, in Boston. Yeah, he's got a str- <laughs> in Boston. He, yeah, his middle name, as we like to say. He's got a very <laughs> yeah, distinctive right. middle name. But, but Panella makes the play of that game. No, he made two of them. And, uh, yeah, that... that I'm glad you brought it up because people only remember Bucky Dent. They only remember the offense. See, I'm a defender. I remember the defense for mm-hmm. defensive plays. And number one, um, <clears throat> Reggie always played right. You know, Reggie didn't like the DH, but in that particular day, because of the Sun situation, yep. they put Pinnell out there because he was a better defender. <clears throat> so we're hitting Gidry a little bit. Yes, it's a two-run homer off him. And we got a couple guys on, and I come up, and I hook one into the corner. Um, it looks for all intents and purposes it's going to be a double or a triple. And if that gets in there, um, Gidry's out of the game, and it's over. It makes it 4 nothing, and now we get into their middle core of mm-hmm. relief, and then that's when it would, the game would have been over. But for some unknown, unknown reason, Pinella is playing me to pull. And he snow cones it in the corner. <laughs> And I'm just I'm just going crazy because I always hit Gidry the other way. And then another play in the eighth inning, he loses the ball in the sun and hits yeah. him in the chest and crazy. prevents Burleson from, to get into third. And Rice hits a long fly ball, would have tied the game. So literally, Pinella played two plays that cost us three runs. Right. And and the guy who hits the home run because that's the way the game is working, especially Correct. an improbable Correct. home run hitter. I mean, not really um, – and that was like the fourth inning when I I hit that ball off Gidry, and he ran it down. Uh, that was a momentum shifter. Yeah. Um, because again, Gidry was the best pitcher in the league, and we knock him out. It's over. Yeah. One of the things that I, I I don't know what your family situation was, what your life situation was in 1975. I don't know if you were married. I don't know if you were dating. I don't know what it was. But I heard the stories about Tony Canigliaro. Um, you know, hometown guy, good-looking guy, young guy, ridiculous talent, uh, second youngest. 100 home runs in baseball history and certainly know how it unfortunately ends for him. Was Boston looking for I mean because you're not a local guy but but young good looking really good player. What's that like in Boston in 1975? Um, <clears throat> I was married at the time so you know I wasn't Tony C and boy they love Tony C and, and you know I got to play with him a little bit in 75 because he was That's trying right. to make a comeback. And, boy, everybody was pulling for him. And on opening day, he gets a hit. The place went bonkers. Uh, it was really it was really fun to see. Um, he was just a great guy uh, and a, a really a, a great talent. And if he doesn't get hit, um, who knows where he would have been, right. uh, like, home run-wise, because that guy was like a machine. 
but uh, for me personally, I was so shy that uh, I didn't hang around uh, downtown Boston much when I was playing. Um, like I said, we had a, a group of rookies, or probably six to eight of us, playing, staying in one place. Mm-hmm. We just all kind of hung out away one of the little tiny suburbs of Boston, but we didn't go downtown much. Um, that's you know that was not done then. Uh, you basically you went. Wherever you live, to the park and back. Uh, there was no intermingling with the, the city, and not till later when I was uh, on other teams when you come in to play, uh, play Boston, and then you're in the town, and then you, you kind of discover what's around. It's, but uh, it's player, crazy. I didn't really know Boston that well. Yeah, it's crazy how a few years can actually change the dynamic of what happens either as a home player or as a visiting player. And I, I just want to finish up with a couple other things, and I do appreciate time. Was there a a really, really good pitcher that you owned. I'm always fascinated by it. And, and the reverse of that is going to be a guy whose name I probably don't even know who just owned you. What was your situation? You know both of them. Um, uh, Frank Tanana, uh, I couldn't hit him with a tennis racket. Um, when he was with the California Angels, and it was he and, and Nolan Ryan, um, Ryan was number one in strikeouts in the league, and, and Frankie was number two. And a lot of, not a lot of people remember Frank Tanana, when he first came up, he threw not as hard as Ryan, but pretty darn close. And he had four pitches from the left side. And the reason he hurt his arm, because he threw across his body. So he was really hard to pick up uh, from my side of the plate. And if I did happen to square one up, you know, somebody caught it. But in 75, we had a pretty good team. We went out there. He struck out 17 of us, Frankie did. And I struck out three times. I didn't even foul one off. <laughs> and I was having a pretty good year. So uh, Frankie, back then, he had he definitely had my number. But the guy that I probably hit as well as anybody else was Burt Blylevin. Hmm. And Burt happened to play for Minnesota, and it seems like anybody who uh, pitched for Minnesota, I hit well. I don't know what it was about that club, or it didn't really matter where or what team I was playing for. I hit well against that club. But in a, a two-game series against Burt, uh, I was playing with the O's then. Uh, in in their place in uh, Minneapolis, I hit two three-run homers off them. And then we went to Baltimore, and I hit two two-run homers off them. And so in two games, I hit four homers, four homers and drove in ten. <laughs> I probably kept Burt out of the Hall of Fame for a while. That's funny. Now, the other thing that comes about, and you did play in a few different places, um, there are guys that people, really good players, have told me, oh, no, no, this guy was every bit as talented as me, but something didn't go right. He wasn't healthy enough. Uh, maybe he didn't care enough. Maybe the attitude wasn't necessarily there. I don't know if you were, let's say, a nine. I don't know how much natural talent you have. You always get in trouble when you're trying to figure out, okay, touched by God. If a guy throws 98, is he touched by God? <laughs> I, don't know if, I don't know if hitting is the same thing as well, but let's say – talent you were an eight and a half or a nine and you worked your craft to actually play at that level for an extended period of time did it bother you burn you or did you see guys that you go my god that guy's better than me he just can't figure something out there's something about him that he can't figure this out was there enough was there that much talent in baseball because the fine line between being able to play at a high level or not being able to just get there or not do you remember guys looking around going man that guy's that guy's filthy talented, even when you're 1% of the 1% of the 1%. Right. Yeah, there are. Um, there's always players like that you describe. Um, they get there, and for whatever reason, they can't stay there. Yeah. And it's usually 
it's between the ears, to be honest. It's a mental thing because a lot of guys have physical talent. I mean, you can see it uh, that oozes out of some of these guys. And you watch them in batting practice, and, geez, the ball's just jumping off mm-hmm. their bat. And, or they'll have a streak. Uh, they'll be playing in, in games and, and hit 400 for a while, and then they're gone. It's like, what happened? Well, it's usually if, if it's uh, a physical thing and they get hurt or injured, you know, that's one thing. Um, but a lot of times it's the men- mental part of the game, which can really wear you out because you play every day. And so if you, if you start to think about your, your successes or your failures of what you just had done and you still have to go out on the field that particular day, whatever you do, positive or negative, you have to let that go and because you plan today. Right, and you're um, 0 for every day. It's the craziest thing in the world. You, you start out kind of with a clean slate unless you're melt- mentally a little bit whacked because the big board, and those boards are big, if it says 238, you know, that's what you are. Even though you're getting a fair chance to start over today, some guys can't really make it about today. I'm assuming that has bugged guys for time and memoriam not getting out of their own heads. Well, that, that's that's exactly right, that, and that's a great way to put it. Um, when you see that, what does it say, 238? That's a good good line there. Um, you, you start thinking about that. Well, you try to get five hits and one at bat. Right. You can't go that way. Um, and if you're, you say you're hitting the ball on the screws and they're, you're, they're catching them, okay, well, <clears throat> you're doing all you can do. All, all, all a hitter can do is hit the ball on the fat part of the barrel of the bat and then <clears> – <throat> You just let it go after that. You can't control those things. If you do it enough times, you're going to get your hits. Do you but believe? You can't, you can't be thinking about what could happen. Yeah. You just have to let it happen. And the guys that let it happen, those are the guys that stay around. The guys that are trying to figure out what can I do you know, two days down the road or why didn't I do this back here? Oh, man, if, if you start thinking about all those things, all that clutter – you won't be able to perform. Oh, and everybody's got a piece of advice, and then guys start to tinker the swing that they've had for 12 years. All of a sudden, I, I look, Cal Ripken's the only guy that I've ever seen play at a very high level that can move his hands in four at-bats. His hands can be in different places. But his swing plane was always the same. He said, my, I, I might be starting differently. But if you start to tinker, if you start to get into that where you're listening to too many people or all of a sudden, you know, I, I kind of call it the, the moment when your uniform doesn't fit right. You, know, you, don't, you can't get comfortable. I, I've had, and it's Chipper and a few other guys tell me that when you, they're going well, they see their footprints in the batter's box. They know exactly where they're supposed to step. You watch right. other guys, and their feet are moving, and they're just trying to, and nothing seems to fit. Nothing is comfortable. Well, the game really slows down when you're doing well. It's like it's slow motion. Because when the, the pitcher throws the pitch, lets it go, it's, you see it so well that it slows it down. <clears throat> and conversely, when you're not, it's like it's on you before you can move your hands. Whoa, what happened there? Um, so there's this zone, um, <clears throat> this comfort zone. When you're in it, life is good. When you're not, you try to get back in it. Um, and one of the things that good hitters can do is that they remember what the zone was like and what they were doing in the zone. And we, as players in my era, we visualize that mentally, right? We, we've got that. Um, we, we remember those things. And today's player, they have to 
be told. They have to look on a video monitor, and they say, well, okay, here's your feet. You know, they see videos against guys. If they don't see it that way, I don't know that they can make the reference. Do you think video can actually, because I've heard guys tell me, oh, I've, I got too wrapped up in it. I got, I got so mind-melded by trying to watch too much video. Um, it, it's there for you when it's a tool, but I'd imagine some guys have got themselves screwed up even worse. Oh, I agree. I agree. Um, too much information. You know, TMI. Right, right. Uh, sometimes, especially with baseball, with the analytics of today, that's a lot of information you're getting or that's available to you. You don't need all that. I know if I'm facing a guy, I know how he got me out the last time I saw him. Right. I don't need video. I remember. Okay, especially if he made me look sick. Okay. You're not you're not going to do that again. I'm taking that pitch away from you. I don't need a, a video, a clip of a video uh, to tell me that. Or we're our teammates. We would talk. We would talk amongst ourselves, the hitters, not the pitchers. We don't like them. We didn't, they weren't included. <laughs> but the hitters, especially on the road, and I tell people this all the time, this is when a team becomes a team on the road because that's when you're really together. Um, you go out after game, have a few beers, and you talk about hitting. You talk about the game. And, you know, what are those guys doing? Yeah, yeah, this guy did this, that guy did that. I don't think that happens anymore. No. And, and uh, here's how old I am and how long I've been doing it. Somebody asked me what the biggest difference is. It was just about four weeks ago. Somebody said, what's the biggest difference in, in the coverage of the game? You've been doing it 20 I said, you know what will never happen again? And I know some guys, but I'll never have a beer post-game with a player again. I used to sit in a locker room. There was a time and a stretch sure. where, I, you yep. know, I wasn't the enemy. Uh, I was, if off the record, it was sacred to me, but it was sort of that, yep. hey, let's sit down and talk about the game. And, and a guy would pull up a chair and you'd, that will never happen again. No, I agree. Um, that's too bad for, especially for guys on your side of the mic. Who want um, to hear baseball guys talking about baseball. Right. And now <clears throat> they might not trust you, but um, because of the cell phones and all those mm-hmm. things. But back then there was a trust factor, and you had to earn that trust. If they let you in that circle, they trusted you. And baseball players are really fickle like that. If you yeah. burn them, you're you're done for life. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. you're toast. Well, it- but if you're fair and you you record what they say accurately and honestly, then they're going to say okay. You know, let's have a beer. Here's what I was told. If you say something, make sure you're there the next day. And I've lived by that. That's the biggest thing for me is you can't hide behind. You know, now it's not a newspaper thing. It used to be newspapers. Uh, It's certainly sports talk radio. Uh, I've always thought, you know, I'm not a shot doctor. I think I'm fair. I think I have a fairly good assessment of the game and, and what's going on both physically and maybe mentally with guys because I've spoken to enough guys. But I would show up if there was a if there was a moment where you go, hold on. This is not going right, and this got to. If you're there the next day, there's at least a respect factor of not hiding behind what it is you were able to say, especially now with a microphone. Guys can say that's whatever correct. the hell they want. Yeah, good on you for doing that because that's that's like, that's what the players want. They want accountability because they have it. I mean, everybody, their game is out there for everybody to see and write about. But the you know the writers or talk show people, mm-hmm. you know, they can and while with these cell phones, they can hide. You know, literally, you can say things and hide behind yes. anonymity. So, yeah, and that's how you gain the player's trust, for right. sure, what you did. Thank you. Let me finish up with you with this, Fred. If you look back at your career, I, I don't know. I, I, I want your assessment because a lot of times other people assess careers, and, and I, I've gotten caught up in it, and I'm sure I have. 
young guys today, uh, everybody is Roberto Clemente, and everybody's a Hall of Famer. It's always Z. <laughs> everybody goes to Z. Nobody's an M. You know, a guy's good, and they want to make him a Hall of Famer comparison. Right. How do you assess your career? I'm sure a lot of people have done it. I'm sure there have been a lot of words written about what you did well, uh, maybe what didn't go quite as well. What do you think about what it is you were able to do? Well, I, I've set the uh, the bar pretty high my first year. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I tried to explain to the, the scribes back then, you know, this obviously is an MVP year. I, 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 I hope I do better each year, but I don't know that that's uh, attainable. Um, I'm going to, my, my goal is as a player is to win championships. That was my goal. That's the, the biggest deficiency that, that bothers me the most about my career is that I was never able to do that, to win. Um, that haunts me more than anything else. I, there's three games that, that stick out for me, and they're all losses and they all could have been wins and I could have been on three world series teams. So, um, that's a real close line there for me. And the other thing is the injuries. If I knew that if you, if I could play 145 to 100, even 150 games, I'm going to be up there in league leaders in a lot of categories. Um, <clears throat> but I wasn't able to do that, especially the second half. Part of it had to do with the style of play that I played, especially on the defensive side. Some of the things that I did probably as a kid playing football and basketball and all those things that I did kind of caught up to me a little bit. I'm not a big guy, you know, 175, 180 pounds. And so, you know, some of those things catch up to you. And two of the things I can say I regret the most that I, I couldn't play more games and the fact that uh, my teams didn't win, that those things that, <laughs> you know, the talent, yeah, I had that. And, you know, I, I had all those things. You know, I could play with anybody. Um, but the, those things held me back. Yeah, it, it is kind of strange. It's interesting. And, I, and I've always, tr- you know, I think players know themselves. I think some guys there's a, a bravado that they're, It's not as realistic, but I I think most guys, most guys I've spoken to can do a self-assessment better than any guy a 1,000 miles away, 2,000 miles away, a Hall of Fame voter. I know everybody has their job, and everybody's sort of, you know, a lot of guys get paid for an opinion. But if you don't ask the player himself, because I swear to you, every every guy that I've asked has given a really, I think, a good self-assessment. You know, if a player's going bad, he knows it before you do. He knows it before the guy's sitting on his couch watching the game on TV. Now, they, they've got to work. They can't give into it. But, but I think players will assess themselves, whether it's a season or whether it's a career, better than anybody else who's going to try to write about it. Yeah, I agree. <clears throat> it's called looking in the mirror, you know, and see an honest reflection there. If you're lying about it, what you see, well, uh, that's not a good thing. Um, but if you, you know, facts are facts. Um, you know, and so I'm... I know, you know, my limitations, and that was the fact that I got hurt too much. Um, but the, everybody knows that I could play, and it's so disappointing, I think, not only for the fans that and my teammates. Um, I, you feel like you let them down when you're – I called, used to call it the dead list um, because you're dead to the team. And, and so, boy, boy, does that eat it eats at a guy like me, who's pretty good, um, when I can't contribute, ooh, I mean that's that's why I live. I, I you know I want to contribute. I want to be the guy that gets us to the playoffs and then win the the championship. That's what I want to do. And have you enjoyed being Fred Lynn like post career? Um, you, you, yeah, you, you know f- I, I was in the broadcast business. Yeah. you know for eight or nine yep. years. So, you know that was a great segue to like real life. Um, so. 
I got to see a different side of the game, and I stayed in it. And, yeah, I, I really uh, enjoy um, once in a while going back to Boston. I live in the San Diego area, and, you know, people remember you. And, you know, what they remember, Chris, the most is my style of play. They don't remember so much, you know, you hit this or you hit that, but they remember me running into stuff and catching balls when right. nobody was doing that and when the walls weren't padded. Um, I'm talking about concrete walls and, and rock-solid rock wooden walls. Um, you know, I, I had no fear. And those are the things that they remember, and that makes me happy because that's the way I, I played, and I, I really am appreciative to the fans that appreciate my style because it's certainly limited to the, the games that I was able to play. Yeah, I, I think the other part of that is, and I'm glad you brought that up very quickly, and we'll finish with this. I think back to that time thing, sometimes you need, a, you need time to, to come up with maybe a fuller picture of what something was or what something wasn't. I think the idea that maybe you stand out because you were willing to do that, people need to get away from you and see other people quite honestly aren't doing that. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think you need a, a number of moments to go, oh, that was different. I don't know if it's different while it's happening because they're probably pissed off, oh, a guy can't play today. But I do think that time sort of makes people understand, you know, this wasn't a guy who jaded a little it. bit. It really does, um, even for me. Um, you know, I know how I played, and I watch, I watch with a critical eye how outfielders play today. And so I, I keep my mouth shut most of the time because a lot of times I, I see things that I don't want to see. But, you know, I'm a, I'm a different breed of cat, and I played in a different era, um, and I did things a little differently. And, and, and it's nice to know that some people appreciate that. Right. Well, Fred, listen, this was tremendous. I really appreciate it. I'm so glad that everything seems to be going well. Still playing a bunch of golf? I am. Yeah. I'm, I'm, you know, I can move it around a little bit for an old guy. Good for you. <laughs> uh, does that mean you're, you're, are you taking money more days and you're giving money away? Well, I have to give some strokes to some people yeah. once in a while. But, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it seems to come my way more often than not. <laughs> well, then it's good to be Fred Lynn. Hell, you live outside of San Diego. Uh, and, and yet, you, listen, you had a hell of a run. You had a hell of a run. Yeah, I appreciate that, Chris. You uh, you you ask uh, some in, insightful things. Uh, you do a good job, and, and as somebody from my side of the fence, we appreciate that. Well, thank you. I really appreciate you saying so, Fred. We will do it again at some point, but I'm really glad we had a chance to catch up. As I said, it's been a really long time. So, thanks very much for your time today. My pleasure, Chris. We'll All right, Fred. Again, thank you. Appreciate it. Have a great day. Thanks. And a fly ball deep to center field. Lynn going way back, way back, and he can't make the play. It's off the wall. Evans will recover, and Lynn is not up. He has been shaken up. One run comes in. Here comes Rose with the second run, and Freddie Lynn is hurt in the corner in the dead center field. He must have hit his head against that wall, and he is really shaken up. And Darrell Johnson, trainer Charlie Moss, going out to center field. Griffey on at third with a triple, two runs in. And I've never heard Fenway Park as silent as it is right now. I want to live. I want to give. I've been a miner for a heart of gold. It's these expressions I never give that keep me searching Searching for a 
first, one of the first times watching him hit in Fenway Park. Taking BP, I think it was the 9th of September in 74, and just started flipping balls for fun, they, bouncing off the left field wall. From that point on, I mean, he just, he used left field, I mean, the way the great left-handed hitters do in that ballpark. I've been to Hollywood, I've been to Redwood, I crossed the ocean for a heart of gold. I've been in my mind, it's such a fine line that keeps me searching for playing right field told me later that he knew Gidry's fastball wasn't what it was. So Pinello took eight steps towards the right field corner before the ball was delivered. He's so far out of position, I can't tell you. If that goes in, chances are Gidry's out of the game, and we're into their middle relief, and that's, that's it's over. It's over. Keep me searching for a heart of gold. You keep me searching not in the Hall of Fame today because he got traded. I've covered a lot of really good people, but he's pretty close to the top of the list. And I think that's the thing that I hear the most. It's not what a great player. It was what a classy player. What a great guy. I'm very proud of him as a human being. I think we did okay. 